Hebrews and chapter 9. Our focus is going to be on verses 11 through 14, but for the sake of context, let's start in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are just so grateful for your word. Write its truths on our hearts. Show us the Lord Jesus. Be glorified in this. Accomplish all your purposes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine a couple, they meet online, form an internet dating relationship. It goes so well online that they get engaged online, planning to marry. The guy lives in Phoenix, the lady lives elsewhere, and they arrange for a wedding. And she visits Phoenix, his home city, fully intending to have a wedding just a few days after she arrives. Well, she arrives at Sky Harbor Airport, and he's not there. He didn't show up, and so she's concerned, and uh, though she understood he was going to be meeting her, he wasn't there, so she calls him from the airport. And frantically, she says, where are you? Is everything okay? And he answers, oh, yes, oh, yes, all's every everything's good, all's well. I truly love you, but I realize that I'm really just happy seeing your photos. I look at them every day. Honestly, uh, before I go to bed, it's the last thing I see. When I wake up in the morning, your photo is next to my bed. I love your photos. And really, I thought to myself, I don't need anything else. Your pictures are truly great. What a betrayal. The lady has every right to feel gutted, heartbroken, and despite his words, he doesn't really love her, does he? He does not love her. To embrace the picture, but not the person, is to actually hate the person and despise 
the person. That's true betrayal. So it is regarding the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, which were a picture of the Lord Jesus. To reject the reality and be so absorbed in the picture is to hate the reality, the person. It's ultimate betrayal. To echo the words of Scripture, Jesus said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips. You say you love me. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Here's what I want you to see. The picture of the thing is not the reality of the thing. The picture is inferior to the real thing. Why would a man be absorbed in picture when the lady's at the airport waiting for him? And the person is far, far more precious than the picture. The reality is far superior to the picture. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, Judaism's great sin. They say they wait for the Savior, but when he came, they rejected him. John chapter 1 verse 11 reads like this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He showed up, and they didn't want him. That's the message of the Bible. Salvation is through faith in the blood of Jesus. Now, that seems bizarre, grotesque. Some would call it primitive. The late Bishop John Shelby Spong uh, saw the atonement of Christ as a concept as loathsome. He wrote this, I would choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son. That's very popular in liberal courts. It's not popular in the saints uh, in heaven and those who know him on earth. They're all about worthy is the lamb who was slain, who by his blood redeemed us to God. But his message, Spong's message and many people's messages, look, just get off your guilt trip. Man is not so bad and God is not so holy that he requires this primitive, grotesque thing of a sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of his son. God would never require the death of his son as payment for sin. We're more sophisticated. You've got to say it like this. We're more sophisticated than that. Primitive religious idea. There's only one problem, big one. The entire Bible tells a very different story. Man is in a dreadful condition. He's a sinner by nature and guilty of sin. Now, that doesn't often hit us the way it should. We're actually guilty of sin. I've adapted this uh, from an illustration from the movie documentary American Gospel, Christ Crucified. You might have heard this before, but it bears repeating. If I take a key out of my pocket and use it to scratch a rock uh, found by the roadside, I've, I've actually broken no law and I'll not face any consequences. If I go to an abandoned car dump site and take my key and scratched, uh, scratched a, a trashed car there, people might say, hey, hey, what are you doing? But that's about it. If I go to a used car lot and use the key to scratch a used car, now I'm guilty of a criminal offense. But if I go to a Ferrari car lot and take the same key and scratch a brand new Ferrari, my punishment will now be way bigger, my guilt is intensified, and so is the punishment that I'll face. Now why? Because of the value of the thing I sinned against. The value of the thing I scratched. A rock? Who cares? Ferrari? People care. God is infinitely holy infinitely valuable. There's no way to convey in human language the worth and the value of this infinite God. Therefore, any sin against an infinite God carries with it infinite punishment. Do you see that? That's why the value of Christ's atonement for sinners on the cross is infinite. Let's talk about sin. What is it? One man said it this way. Sin is 
the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. Ladies and gentlemen, the blood of Jesus Christ is the only remedy for sin. Sin is huge. And so is the value of Christ's death for us on the cross. And that's what we're going to see in the passage before us Looking at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, see the first word, but. We saw this last time. This speaks of the contrast with all that's revealed in the first 10 verses. The old pointed forward. Someone's coming. Something is going to happen, but it's not yet. But it points to the, what will come. And the, the contrast is startling. But, then we read, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Let's just stop there for a moment. He appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. Something has happened. Christ has come and he's done something. The old was never perfect. It pointed forwards to what was to come. And what was to come is now here and it's happened. It's come. Read these words. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. These words are startling. And it's revealing this. There's an earthly tabernacle that we're aware of. The book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and so on describe that tent in the wilderness. But it was a mere copy of something that was in heaven. And no human hands erected the more perfect tent. The earthly is not a perfect thing. The heavenly is a perfect tent tent and no human hands made it what is seen on earth is only a copy of the heavenly reality look at verse 12 he entered once for all let's get the flow of this when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all now, I want you to grasp this. This phrase is shocking, but it's vital we get it. This phrase is a temporal term. What I mean by that is that it's not speaking of all people, once for all people. It's speaking about a time element, a temporal term. It does not refer to the concept of once for all people, but hear this, this phrase means once for all in terms of time. The emphasis is this, he entered, who did? Jesus did, and he did so once for all time. In contrast with the Old Testament high priest who went in and out, he went in and he went out, and then next year he went in, and then he went out. There were repeated sacrifices every year. It was repetitious, and it was a reminder of sin. More has to be done. That's what this was all saying in the Old Covenant. More has to be done. We'll be back next year. Thanks for coming, everybody. We'll be back next year. In contrast to this, once for all time, he entered into the holy places, the holy of holies. He did it once. And he never needs to do it again. He entered once for all into the holy places, the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, we read, but by means of his own blood. In the Old Testament tabernacle, the priest cannot enter the holy of holies anytime he likes. It's just once a year. Only one man in the entire nation, once a year. And he can't enter in without a sacrifice. He has to have blood in his bowl. He came into the Holy of Holies to present the blood on the mercy seat 
leave it there, and then get out. Christ, in contrast, entered not by means of a bowl, not by means of bold, bowl blood, but by his sacrifice on the cross. And it was a once-for-all work. Christ is the perfect high priest, and Christ is the perfect sacrifice. We've seen already in Hebrews, he's the perfect high priest. Now the focus is on what his sacrifice has achieved. Now read these stunning words. Look at them. Thus securing an eternal redemption. So in one portion of this verse, there's a time element of once for all. Now we see the results of that act. Eternal redemption. Eternal speaks of to the ages, to the ages of the ages, on and on and on and on and on. There is no end to this. By what he did once, he has secured something forever. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, reads this way, having obtained eternal redemption. That's a very good translation, as is the ESV at this point, thus securing. Having obtained, thus securing. It's bringing out the point that by his redemptive work, eternal redemption has been achieved. The Old Testament high priest sacrifice, get this, was not eternal. It was temporal and repeatable. It had to be repeated every year. It, by definition, did not secure anything eternally. We're okay for a year. But we better be back, be back next year because there'll be more sins that need to be atoned for next year. But we're okay right now. Right now we're good. That's all it did. The word atonement means covering. And it's as if God, through the picture, the photo of the old covenant sacrifices, was saying, I'm going to cover things over for now, but this is only temporary. There's going to come the more perfect sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle. And it's going to do what the earthly could never do. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus obtained eternal redemption. What kind of redemption? Now hear this. This was not theoretical. It's a redemption in theory. If man will just do some things, if man will repent and believe, then that will actualize this thing. No, no, uh, no. He actually did it all by himself. In fact, when man repents and believes, that too is the gift of God. So it wasn't theoretical, it wasn't partial. Jesus on the cross did not shout out, I've done most of it. He cried out, it is finished. It is paid for. It's done. It wasn't theoretical, it wasn't partial, it wasn't hypothetical. Well, I've kind of done it and um, hypothetically I've saved people here. He didn't make salvation possible on the cross. He secured. He secured eternal redemption for a people. This was not a redemption depending on the acts of others in the future. No. On the day he died, he was able to say it's finished and he obtained eternal redemption. Now see what's being said there. Here, I believe it will thrill your soul. This is what thrilled me at 3.30 in the morning today. <laughs> you didn't go in. Your works didn't go into the Holy of Holies. Your faith didn't go into the Holy of Holies. Your repentance didn't go into the Holy of Holies. You weren't there. He did it all. You didn't go in. Your works didn't go in. Your acts didn't go in. Your faith didn't go in. Do you realize this? Your faith is not the Savior. Faith is simply the means by which we appropriate what the Savior has done. We don't say, all glory to my faith. You say that and you think, well, of course we don't say that. But think that through. Some people think it's, Jesus did a whole lot, but it takes me to get redemption. No. 
Your faith is the gift of God. Your desire for Christ is God's gift of taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh that beats to know Christ. And you don't now want what you didn't want before. God as he really is and his gospel as it really is. Faith is the means by which the Savior saves. And faith is not the Savior. B.B. Warfield once said this, It is not strictly speaking even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Get that and you understand the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus went in as the high priest and as the sacrifice, and you and I weren't needed. And he did it for us. He did it for all his people. He obtained eternal redemption. Isaiah 53 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And he was. Now, this of course is offensive to all religious people who would like to think that they can bring something to the table of redemption. There's something in us that says, well, he he did a whole lot, even 99.999% of everything, but it was my faith that turned it. That's why I'm saved, because I did something. No, that would be boasting in a work. No. By grace are you saved through faith. And this, the grace, the salvation, and the faith, this is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is offensive, but see the message here. Jesus went in all by himself, and all he presented to the Father was the sacrifice of himself, and that was enough. This is salvation, solus Christus, by Christ alone. This is not just a doctrine made up by eager reformers. This is the testimony of Scripture. And Hebrews spells it out. He went in all by himself as the high priest, and by means of his sacrifice alone, he saved the people and secured eternal redemption for them. There is no way that any of his true sheep would not be saved by means of his sacrifice. He went to the cross for them, fulfilling the words of the angel to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save, not try to, he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. He did it. He did it. And he secured eternal Redemption. Look at verse 13. For if I the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh. Now we read that and think, uh, I'm not sure what that is about, but let's get to some good parts. What is all this about? The ashes of a heifer. Where again, the writer to the Hebrews was, of course, very familiar with Old Testament imagery. And he knew that the recipients of this letter would be also. It's like someone writing to us and speaking of Abraham Lincoln. We know who that person is. And if we think about uh, the Gettysburg Address, we have some knowledge of it. And certainly these people have had knowledge of this, which is why the writer doesn't take time to explain it. You know this. You know about the ashes of the heifer. Come on, you know about the ashes. Yeah, we know about the ashes of the heifer. Yeah, ashes of a heifer. What's all that about? Well, again, we're Gentiles. We have to now read our Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, to find out what the Jews understood in their history. And they knew all about the ashes of the heifer. What was it? Something very familiar to them. It's a reference to Numbers chapter 19. For those who had touched a dead body and were therefore ceremonially unclean, they had to sacrifice the ashes of a heifer, mix it with water for cleansing. And everybody knew that. We have to learn that. Rick Phillips writes this. These sacrifices provide a kind of solution to the problem. They did sanctify those, sanctifying quotes, those who were unclean so that they could be restored to fellowship with God and Israelite society. Yet, there was also something they were unable to do. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's Hebrews 9 verse 9. The blood of Bulls and goats succeeded in restoring the unclean to ceremonial cleanliness and therefore to the religious life of the nation. But there was a better blood to which they pointed, a blood that is in this 
in its shedding would actually cleanse the inner man and therefore restore people to real fellowship with the Holy God. Now, we have to learn this. The Hebrews would know this. And here's the argument. It's the how much more argument. If the lesser, and we've established it's a lesser thing, if the lesser could do this, how much more will the superior do? How much more will the superior do than the inferior? The old covenant and the sacrifices there were inferior to the superior sacrifice of Christ, Christ in the ministry and priesthood of Melchizedek. And therefore, if the old did this, how much more will the superior do? If the Old Testament sacrifice did this, how much more will the superior sacrifice do? Here's the message. We've got a better high priest. We have a better sacrifice. And if the Old Testament was able to do this, how much more? Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ? How much more will the blood of Christ? Christ, as you know, is not the last name of Jesus or the surname of Jesus. Jesus wasn't born to Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a title. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which carries over from the Hebrew word Mashiach. We translate it as Messiah. And so when we read, how much more will the blood of Christ, it's saying this, how much will the blood of the Messiah the anointed one, the one who was the expectation of those who believed of old covenant times. How much more will the blood of the Messiah... Now stop and think about this. The revelation of the Old Testament tells of the Messiah who will come as the reigning king. And he would be the priest. Psalm 110, we've seen this already. He'll be the king, he'll be the prophet, he'll be the priest... And so were so many of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, his kingly reign, that people thought he can't also be the suffering servant. You can't be the reigning king and then suffer, and certainly not suffer for sins. They couldn't see. And so many in Israel thought there must be two messiahs. That's the only way we could work this out, a king and a suffering servant. But the revelation of the New Testament is that Jesus is the king and the suffering servant. He's the king who died for his subjects. It's profound. The blood of the Messiah. How much more will the blood of the Messiah... The Messiah's blood? Yeah. The Messiah, the reigning king and the suffering servant. The death of the Messiah on behalf of his people. We've read it early in the, ser- in the service. Let me read it again, just quickly. Surely, surely, I think of Handel's Messiah. Surely, surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, question, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That speaks of the suffering servant's death. To be cut off out of the land of the living is to die. Stricken for who? For the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now, in verse 8, it tells us he was cut off out of the land of the living. And yet, verse 10 says he shall prolong his days. His death is prophesied. His resurrection is prophesied. He shall prolong his days. He's going to live again. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge Shall the righteous one, oh, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Who does he make righteous? The ones he bears their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the strong. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. There it is again. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I have to move along from Isaiah 53 or we'll never get out of it. It is so profound as you know. But here's the message. He, Jesus, is the God-appointed high priest and he, Jesus, is the God-appointed sacrifice. Now, the man, Jesus, died. Don't make the mistake of thinking that God died on the cross. God cannot die. There's a number of things he cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot die. But Jesus died. Yes. But isn't he God? Yes. The man, Jesus, died. But the man who died was God. Let me read Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to you. It's stunning. Pay careful attention, Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, God being the subject here, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. By his own death, he obtained the church. Isn't that what Ephesians says? He loved her and gave himself for her. Now, it just as it is the privilege of any lady to change her mind. You're on the way to a restaurant, you think you're going somewhere, man, and then the lady changes her mind and you say, that's okay, honey, we'll go there. Amen. So it is the prerogative of theologians to make distinctions. So hear this, God did not die on the cross, God cannot die. But Jesus the man died on the cross, and this man is also God. It's profound, it blows your mind, but that shows us why Jesus' death was so valuable. Remember we started with talking about how sin is infinite in terms of its treasonousness, if that's a word. So the value of the death of Christ is infinite because the man who died was also God. Andrew Murray writes this, it was the life of God that dwelt in him. That life gave his blood, each drop of it, an infinite value. The blood of a man is of more worth than that of a sheep. The blood of a king or a great general is counted as more valuable than hundreds of common soldiers. The blood of the Son of God, it is the it is vain the mind seeks for some expression of its value. All we can say is it is his own blood the precious blood of the Son of God. I would just say amen to that. Continuing reading. Who, through the eternal Spirit, do you see that? Don't miss that. It's a, it's a little thing along the way because a, another point is being made, but don't miss those words. Who, through the eternal Spirit. Do you realize this? Eternality, to be eternal, is a divine attribute. Now, God gives us who believe eternal life. But you realize this, you weren't in existence eternally. You will now have eternal life. But there was a time when you were not. There was a time you might have been in the mind of God. He's going to create you at some point. But there was a time when you were not. That's never been true of God. He always has been. He's the great I am, not the I was or the I'm going to be. Eternality is a divine attribute. The word eternal, eternal, necessitates this something uncreated. Angels are not eternal because there was a time when they were not. But the Holy Spirit is what? The eternal Spirit, always existing, never a time when he was not. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a clear reference to the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is not a made-up idea of theologians. It's found, it has its basis in the text of Scripture. There's one God and three persons, each of whom are described as God. 
And this is an attribute of God, the eternality of the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. Because there's many wonders to see in this passage, but hear this, the Holy Spirit is eternal. He's a person. He always has been, and he is God. He can be lied to, Acts chapter 5. He can be grieved. He's not a force. Electricity can't be grieved. You don't get near to electric wire and hear them, the, the wire sobbing. All right, let's continue. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Oh, the high priest in Israel had to present an unblemished sacrifice. We know that. Now, Jesus, as high priest, presented himself, the unblemished one. John the Baptist said of him, John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. He's the Lamb, the unblemished one. He's the perfect Lamb of God. We've already read in Hebrews, He was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. There was no blemish in this one. There was never a time when the Lord Jesus ever had to say sorry either to God or anyone else. See the wonders of this. What we're reading about, I think I got excited about this about 4.30 this morning. This is intra-Trinitarian salvation. All the members of the Trinity are involved in what happened on the cross. And nothing, I repeat, Nothing was done outside of God himself. He, God, did it all. How do we see that? The Son of God is the high priest and the offering. The offering is made to who? The offering is made to the Father. And the offering is made to the Father in the power of the eternal spirit. This is Trinitarian salvation. The Son, by the Spirit, to the Father. Let me say that again. The Son, He's the one who's offered, by the Spirit to the Father. Oh, delight in this child of God. This is God, the Trinity, saving a people. This is why it's flawless. That's why none of Christ's true sheep will ever be lost. It's impossible. It would be a fracturing of the Trinity. It would be God failing to be God. He's got an intent to save his people. The Father chooses a people in eternity past. The Son comes and lives and dies for them. And then the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to those same people. In time, he'll quicken them. In time, he'll raise them from spiritual death. He'll give them ears to hear. And they shall respond. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said. And he will not lose any of those that the Father gives him because the Holy Spirit comes in to live on the inside of those whom the Father has chosen and has applied redemption to so that they now want that, what they didn't want before and they eternally want Christ. There may be highs, there may be lows, there may be ups, there may be downs, but no true sheep will ever desert the shepherd forever. And if someone professes Christ and walks away, John didn't say, well, Christ lost a true sheep. No, he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. 1 John 2, 19. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us because that's the nature of the faith he puts on the inside of us. Not a temporal look at Christ. And, you know, I've been a Christian for a while. I'm kind of now into other things. No, the one who truly has come to Christ in saving faith, has a regenerated heart that's alive to God, and now they want what they didn't want before. They may blow it badly. Peter did, but he came back. Judas was never a true disciple. He went away and never came back. Jesus said to Peter, I've prayed for you, and when you've turned, I've prayed that your faith won't fail, and when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. What a difference. This is Trinitarian salvation. It's bigger than you and me. If we think, I've got to keep this up, you've missed the point. It's not you who started your Christian faith. It's He that has begun the good work in you. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians 1.6 
Salvation is God saving you from God by means of God. This is God saving you from God. And God, when he does a job, finishes it. What a relief. Oh, I look at the size of my faith and think, oh, can God save me with this little thing I've got called faith? Well, that's the whole point. It's the strong Savior who saves through faith, not your strong faith that saves you. And a little faith in the true faithful Savior saves. A little of the real thing saves. Oh, I'm just trying to build my faith, brother. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying. Now just rest. And that's what the Bible intel, encourages us to do. Have faith in God. Not faith in your faith. Faith in God. He's able to do anything. We all agree with that. We'll rest in the fact that he says, I'll save everyone who calls on my name. And those who have true faith, that being the gift of God, have as the nature of that faith an eternal interest in the Lord Jesus. That's the thing I can testify in my own heart. At age eight and nine, I saw my Bible and was reading it, and it's actually my dad's Bible, and I read it, and I had no interest in it, and I thought, mentally, that's the end of me and Christianity. But God had other ideas. Can you tell? I now like what I didn't like before. And it's been a while. It's not 10 weeks or 10 years, but decades on, Still loving him, still loving him. Not because of the strength of my faith, but because of the Savior who's faithful, who gives a faith that lasts, that endures. It's God who saves. Relax. Well, don't I have to do anything? Yes. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You're making it very simple, Pastor. Yes. It's Jesus who saves. You're not going to get into heaven. And all the angels say, whoa. We were worried. God is not going to say, I was worried. It wasn't looking good. What was happening in 2023 did not look good. God has taken you on so that you become the trophy of his grace. So men and angels will marvel at the redemption found in Jesus Christ. And that's why all the glory will go to God on that day when you see him. How much more will the blood of the Messiah purify our conscience from dead works? Oh, the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse the conscience of sinners. We had real sin, but we have a real high priest who brought a real sacrifice. This is where we live. Our conscience, it plagues us. What we need to do is revel in the death of Christ for us. We might still feel estranged even after we confess our sins. But go to the scripture, child of God. 1 John 1, 9 does not say if we confess our sins. He might get to forgiving us someday, but we've got to really now be on probation for a while. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Soak in that. Be absorbed in that. Pastor, you say this and people will just go on sinning. You're giving them a license to sin. No, people will sin without a license. But the genuine Christian doesn't want to sin. He might fall into it, but he's not going to lay in it. Because there's something or someone called the Holy Spirit who's now saying, come on, up you get. Look to Christ. Believe. Believe on, keep on believing. And you think, I want to give up, I want to give up. But have you ever come to the place where you say, look, I want to give up this Christian life. And you think, I will for a week. But that heart that's made alive to God starts manifesting itself. And you think, but I, I can't walk away from him. What has he ever done to me? All he's done is been faithful. All he's done is been faithful to his covenant. All he, and you come back. Now, it wasn't because of the strength of your stout heart. It's because the nature of what God did when he changed your heart gives you an eternal love for Christ. Oh. 
You might feel estranged. Meditate in the scriptures. Revel. Dwell in this, in the perfect work of the perfect Savior. How the burden rolls away when we get this. Jesus is the king. He uses words like yoke. Jesus came and preached the kingdom of God. King and domain, two words sandwiched together. The domain of the king, kingdom. He preached the kingdom, the domain of the king. And he said words like this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. This is not a works program. The Bible's not a works program. How you can get to God by what you do, it's a rescue plan. It's what God has done in the person and the work of Jesus, plus nothing. Or where do works come into view? Your neighbor needs your works. God doesn't. God has works for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by good works. You're saved for good works. But none of those works give you right standing with God. The blood of Jesus did it all. Finally, back to Hebrews 9. How much more shall the blood of the Messiah purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I think I got excited about this at 528 this morning. The Greek word to serve, latruen, has a specifically priestly connotation. This is not like serving at Wimbledon where you serve a tennis ball. What kind of service is this? Serving in what sense? Serving in a priestly capacity. It's a very unusual word. The blood of Jesus Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve in a priestly function the living God. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Again, a doctrine recovered at the Protestant Reformation. It's not just specially elected priests who can do service for God. The idea was if you're really going to be close to God, you've got to leave this world, go join a monastery, or if you're a lady, join a nunnery, and just get away from the people and pray, and you'll be serving God in a priestly way. And some people can be priests. It's actually blasphemous for what God has done in the person of Jesus where he's made all of us priests. Fulfilling what Exodus prophesied about Israel. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, do you remember those words? You are a chosen race, a royal, that's kingly, priesthood, a holy nation. All of us, all of us are priests. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Why are we priests? Not to bring blood of someone like a bull or a goat or a heifer. Not to bring our own blood. Not even to bring Christ's sacrifice again. He went into the holy place once for all. No more sacrifices needed. Imagine the attendant. We're trying to get in and he says, oh, what are you doing? I'm trying to get into the holy of holies. Well, you're a Gentile, right? No way. And Yeah, well, but, but, but I've got to bring something to this table of redemption. No, 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 no. But I brought this offering. What is the offering? I've, 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 I've got a lot of works. And what are you talking about? In the true tabernacle, Jesus has already entered in and brought the sacrifice and everything else in terms of sacrifice is now forbidden. It's obsolete. It's not needed. So that you can serve the living God. 
Keep your place in Hebrews 9. What kind of sacrifice are we to bring as priests? Priests have a function, right? Aren't we supposed to bring a sacrifice as a priest? That's kind of the function of a priest. Yep, Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's it. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So on the basis of the high priest and his sacrifice, our part is to offer a sacrifice of praise. Praise God for my redemption. Oh, you're working as a priest today. I see that. What else are you going to do? Nothing. Well, aren't you going to bring a, a bag of groceries to the table of redemption? No. I, I, hands off. Uh, uh, no, I got, I got nothing. All I got are hands raised. Hands raised in praise. Hands raised in praise for my Savior. Praise God, He saved me. That's your function as a priest today. And we're a kingdom of priests, every one of us, based on the fact that our high priest has already done the job entirely. Solus Christus, to God alone be the glory. He saves all by Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit unlimited you're not merely redeemed you're set aside for service but but you know i i work in this secular environment i'm a salesperson i'm i'm a teacher i'm a mom i'm a dad i'm a grandpa i'm i'm a this name the thing you might be selling shoes you can do that for the glory of god and be serving him do you realize all of you are in full-time ministry your life is now in service to God. You're living as a priest and you serve the living God. Your entire life is now service. And here's what's amazing. That service doesn't end at death. In heaven will be a continuation of the priesthood ministry of the believer. Hands raised, I'm sure. One song on our lips. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He redeemed us to God by His blood and made us a kingdom and priests. You're cleansed and set apart to serve the living God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, was raised from the dead. By his offering, he's redeemed the people for himself and he now sits in the place of intercession, interceding for his people. Who are his people? Those who call on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith. Come to him, repent and believe this good news and stand in the finished work of the Savior and join the throngs of the angels and those that are redeemed, giving glory to God through Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ. He saved us all by himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful high priest and this wonderful sacrifice. May it alert our conscience to realize we've been cleansed now and forever because of the person and the work of Jesus plus nothing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.